On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, a guest hosted by me, Scott Radley, we are going to talk about masks, as in, should we be wearing them? As in, should we be wearing them indoors? That's the new discussion. Should that be a law? Should that be a rule? Well, we'll talk about that one. We're also going to chat about food because there is a push on in light of a number of deaths of migrant workers to shut down the entire Canadian agriculture industry until COVID gets sorted out. What would happen if we actually did that? And we will chat mafia because who doesn't love a good mafia story? Interpol and various countries are trying to make sure the mafia doesn't get into some cracks left by the economic devastation of COVID. Should they be worried? Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I want to get to this mask story because uh, we heard we've heard in the last few days of a number of mayors, especially in Southern Ontario, saying masks indoors should be mandatory. Now, the Ministry of Health yesterday said, no, that's not going to be the case. Here's what Mayor John Tory from Toronto had to say about the decision by the Ministry of Health to say no. Fortunately, in most instances, we've been on the same page and we've been in sync with each other. Uh, they've made for now a different decision and we respect that. Uh, but we decided to go a direction we felt was the right thing for the City of Toronto, subject to the City Council's approval. Uh, and that's exactly what we will do. And I suspect you're going to find uh, before too long, other mayors uh, will be uh, announcing the same sorts of measures for their municipal similar to the one that's proposed to be enacted by the city of Toronto. So there you go. So they are proposing to make masks mandatory indoors. Others are, we're hearing apparently this afternoon, three o'clock, three 30 from mayor Fred Eisenberger, about what Hamilton's plans may be, although you heard probably a good hint on the news just a moment ago, should this be done? Are masks indoors a good idea? And even if they are, how do we enforce this? Let me bring in Dr. Todd Coleman. He's a PhD assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Dr. Coleman, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, this is probably not exactly your area, but I want to start here for just a second um, because there are questions before we even get into the health benefits or the good ideas of masks. What do we know what rights we have for wearing. Now I know that clothes, we have a choice of what clothes we want to wear, but for any kind of medical stuff, do we have, are, are there rights issues? Do we know around wearing something or not wearing something? Yeah, it's a bit of a touchy subject. Um, there's not really any cut and dry. Yes or no. Is it, can we legally enforce everything? Um, I think what, what seems to be happening is it'd be put into something that is effectively, just a, a, a city or regional bylaw uh, kind of thing, uh, instead of actually enforcing it by uh, higher legal legal uh, bodies like police or anything like that. All right, so let's get to the enforcement in a moment. I don't want to jump around too much, but let's yeah. go to the issue here of we have had a three month now. When did it start? March, really? We're talking about COVID really getting our attention. So three, almost four month discussion about masks. And we started with Dr. Teresa Tam, who we were all listening to saying, no, don't wear masks. In fact, don't maybe wear them. Don't wear them. They'd be a bad idea. Now we've swung to, yeah, you probably should wear them. What, what actually for real science, what do we really know about masks and COVID at this point? Uh, a lot of the, the science that we know uh, about masks is, is, Stuff that was done early on, uh, looking at just generally what passes through certain uh, face coverings. But what we do know is that 
COVID-19, specifically coronavirus, is transmitted primarily through uh, respiratory, uh, which means that uh, wearing the right kind of mask could block particles from getting out and also block them from uh, you inhaling them. Uh, so it's sort of double protection on that front. So and it also depends on the right kind of mask, like I said. I did see a picture, a meme maybe, on uh, social media yesterday or the day before, and it showed a bunch of Petri dishes of, you know, a cough into a Petri dish with and mm-hmm. without a mask. I don't know if you've seen that one. Are, are those things accurate? I mean, is it significantly different if you do have a mask on and it's proper right now? Is, is that the, what the science is showing us? Yeah, the science is showing that. I saw that same uh, image yesterday. Uh, and there's another image showing uh, really visually what happens when you wear a mask and uh, everyone else wears a mask. So if you're wearing the right kind, most, uh, if not all of the particles are blocked. Some may still get through. uh, But the idea there is that this uh, COVID-19 is is sort of a dose response. So it's just like a drug. The more virus you're exposed to, the sicker you'll get. So preventing or getting a really low dose could mean the difference between uh, a critical illness or just something that that really uh, is more mild on the symptom side. All right. So now maybe I'm the last person in Canada or in the world to have caught on to this. Uh, so I thank you for bringing this up because I had not heard that before. I, mean, I had not heard that, although it's logical that a bigger dose into your lungs might cause more problems, but, but that's what we're finding now is that it is your impact or your sickness could be more affected by a bigger amount of the virus that gets into you. It doesn't just spread and look after itself that way. Yes, that's right. So more, more virus uh, typically uh, means uh, more critical infection. That's why we see uh, a lot of our healthcare workers uh, who don't have the proper uh, protective equipment being really incapacitated by by this uh, hmm. uh, infection. Just before we get into the other stuff, the the idea of a um, of a mask bylaw or a mask rule indoors, as opposed to a bylaw that would say you must social distance, and now we kind of have that, and we've tried to do it. But this, uh, would I be reading right? I mean, social distancing is still as good or better a thing. It's just way harder to crack down on some kind of bylaw to actually measure whether you're six feet apart or not. A mask you can see and you can then decide if they're following the law or not. Yeah, in terms of actually knowing whether people are, are instead of going out with a tape measure and measuring the distance between yeah. everybody, a mask is pretty apparent. Uh, the, the idea there too is that it's not just one or the other, it's still both. Uh, social distancing and mask wearing would be ideal uh, for prevention. So let's say that the mayors decide they're going to do this. Now, I, I don't get the sense from what we've read and from what we played a moment ago that the province is going to jump in here, not because they're taking their advice from the Ministry of Health. So let's say the cities decide to do it. How exactly do they do this and how do they enforce it? That's, that's a big question. Uh, we're, we're seeing shortages, number one. So uh, being uh, a lot of people would need to access the mask first thing. Uh, in terms of the enforcement, uh, the only thing I can think of is is similar to what was happening with the social distancing is just make it a, a, a something handled by bylaw officers, people uh, uh, monitoring in, in locations. We, we've seen in some cases like where uh, it's encouraged to wear masks. Uh, 
in, in public spaces. Uh, maybe that just needs to be enforced on in terms of businesses, those kinds of things. We saw that with the phase the phase two or stage two reopening that, uh, for example, most hairstylists were wearing masks as were their customers. Uh, there, there's a lot of, of already existing uh, social protocol around mask wearing. So it shouldn't be too difficult, but I, I have no idea really what each each area is going to suggest in terms of how to really enforce uh, people having a certain clothing uh, on their face. Yeah, and, and I mean, the bylaw thing, it's... I don't want to be dumping cold water on what could be a really good idea, but we know that when cities put bylaws into effect, they're only as effective as the bylaw officers and how many they have. And I mean, we don't have a ton of them and you can't put yeah. one in every building. And, you know, we, we look at it with parking tickets. I mean, you may be unlucky and let your meter run out and get a ticket, or you could sit there for five hours and be totally fine. Um, it, it, it seems like it would be a rather sporadic thing. It would be more of a deterrence, I guess, that you hope you don't run into a bylaw officer. Yeah, and that's, a, that's the thing. If you think about it in terms of other behaviors that we've tried to, to curb, like uh, uh, smoking, uh, really the, the, the lowering of smoking was a result of a lot of more social behaviors and social uh, be, thinking that smoking was unacceptable. So it's really... Uh, as a as a community, as a society, uh, normalizing mask wearing uh, would probably be more ideal than the enforcement of it uh, through bylaw officers. There is a whole other issue here, and I think you have seen it, and I know I've seen it, and I bet everyone listening has seen it, and that is the people who are wearing the mask but not wearing it right. And so you go, okay, mm -hmm. now are we going to ticket them as well? You know, a nostril is vi is visible or it's coming up a little bit on the bottom of your mouth or the sides are open. I mean, how it becomes very tricky to say, okay, do you just buy, do you just ticket someone if they're there, someone who's not wearing one at all, or do you ticket someone who's got their nose showing or mouth showing or what do you do? Yeah, exactly. And the, the problem with that, too, is that each region is likely going to have different stipulations about mm -hmm. what is, uh, for example, a ticketable offense. Uh, maybe some locations don't care about the proper wearing of it and other ones. It's just having it in the first place. The, the idea there is it would have to be very, very specific. Uh, and the, I, I don't know whether or not the, the science is really thought out on this. Um, and whether or not it seems really reasonable to have all of these really specific criteria for mask wearing. You know, you've, you've gone in, I'm sure to a store once upon a time, maybe up in cottage country, especially, and you'll see the sign, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea if those signs are legally enforceable or not, but <laughs> what about the idea of not making this a bylaw and just having people say to store owners, look please do this and please enforce it and don't allow someone to come into your store if they don't have it. And then we don't have to have all the legalese and everything else that's, that's thrown into the mix. Would that not be a much less onerous way of achieving the same thing or even better? See, that's a little bit of the, the tricky thing there that you mentioned earlier that the province isn't weighing in on this and saying that they're not going to make it mandatory. Remember, uh, if we, if we trickle it down to the businesses, then the provisions about mask wearing become even more complicated than what's done at the, the bylaw level, for example. So each one business might say it's just the mask, having the mask. They don't care about how you have it on. Another one might say something different. 
Whereas uh, uh, it might just get really, really complicated. One business might just say, I don't want any. I don't, I don't need that mask roll in my store. One last thing before we let you go, we're short on time, is we just had someone call in and say, you know, we talked about a proper mask and we've seen every different combination and permeation. What, what is a proper mask? A proper mask uh, would be ideally something that protects against both large and small particles, similar to what they call the N95 masks that we've seen. Um, they, they all have a different grade of, of protection. So an N95 mask, will protect against both of those. The, the plain surgical masks will protect against larger particles as well as um, like saliva or uh, any nose fluid uh, and as well as cloth masks are similar to those surgical masks. So ideally, if you want to be really, really protective, the N95 mask is the more ideal one, um, but the other ones also offer some level of protection, just not as high as the N95. Dr. Todd Coleman, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Thanks so much for the time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Uh, you know, it, Dr. Coleman's comments, I, I agree with what he says, and I agree with even what the mayors say, that it might be ideal to have people wearing masks in all the stores and other buildings. The problem, as we alluded to it, is how in the world do you enforce this? How in the, we don't have bylaw officers by the hundreds. How in the world do you enforce this? What, and then if you can't enforce it, and I, I, I say this not just with this, with city council stuff all the time. We pass bylaw after bylaw after bylaw. If we're not going to enforce these bylaws, what's the point? There's bylaws about chickens that, uh, you know, we, saw, we read the story this week about someone with a chicken in her backyard that's now in trouble. Not everybody who has a chicken in their backyard gets bylaw enforced. There's bylaws about Winnebago's in your driveways and this and that and fences and it's sporadic. How do you enforce it? And if we're not going to enforce this, it doesn't seem to make much of a point. Even if it is a good idea. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, um, a story that uh, you have been hearing about, I'm sure, about a number of migrant workers, especially down in the Windsor area, big outbreak of COVID. There have been some people dying. Uh, it's been, it's very problematic. There's no question. We're not uh, in any way lessening the loss because they aren't Canadians or they're lesser people or something like that. It's not, no, this is, this is serious. And as a result, there is a group called Justice for Migrant Workers that is now demanding that the entire agriculture sector in this country be shut down until COVID is under control. Don't allow people working in this segment of society to get sick. So shut down the farms, shut down the agriculture, the growing everything until we can sort this out. And, you know, if you're going to argue for the safety only of the workers, it may sound like a valiant idea, but what would that mean big picture especially on our food chain. There's a lot of people who rely on the food chain and on Canadian and Ontario produce to get by. What would that mean? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University. He is also known as the food professor. We love having him on the show. Sylvain, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, good afternoon. So let's take the, uh, the worst or best case good scenario. Afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. How are you? Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can. Oh, there we go. Can you hear me? I can. There we go. We're all sorted out now. Uh, uh, let's take the best or worst case scenario, depending on which way you look at this, and say, yeah, we're going to shut down the Canadian agriculture industry for a few weeks, a few months, until we get this whole thing sorted out. What happens if you do that? <laughs> uh, I, I can certainly appreciate why some people would, would think that it would be uh, ideal to do that, uh, we are talking about the safety of human beings here. Uh, people who've, uh, who've opted to come to Canada for a better life uh, for themselves and their loved ones. So that, that cannot be underscored enough. Uh, however, if you decide to shut down an entire sector, uh, not only you'll compromise the food security of many Canadians, uh, in fact, several Canadians uh, over the coming months, uh, but you will actually also handicap uh, our ability to export uh, products uh, abroad. A lot of the products that are harvested in southern Ontario are, are bound for the export market as well. So that could actually impact the reputation of our country. Now, of course, uh, I'm not even talking about uh, health, public health implications abroad. Uh, seeing some foreign workers dying in Canada, working for Canadians. Uh, so far, uh, Ontario and Canada has been, uh, has been hard hit by that uh, with the Mexican government. Uh, and so we need to be absolutely careful with, uh, with our own reputation. How much of our food that we consume here in Canada comes from Canada? Uh, it depends what category you look at. Are you talking about articulture and fruits and vegetables? In general, I mean, if you said, let's shut down agriculture for a while, and so for this year's, for this summer harvest, for this season, what would we, I mean, how much of what we would go to the store and buy are we not going to have available to us? Yeah, it's it's always a hard answer uh, to provide because there are a lot of products, ingredients that we export to the United States and abroad that we actually buy back in a bottle 10 times or 20 times the price. So I would argue that, a lot of the products we buy in Canada has a Canadian component in it. Uh, the processing part may have occurred somewhere else, but if you basically decide to shut down our sector in Canada, uh, not only uh, that we, have, we would have fewer products, but I would say that other nations like the United States would have fewer products or different products uh, to, to feed themselves with. And then we, you know, this thing starts to spill down the tracks a little bit because now I would assume that if there is less product for us to export to be used into other product when it does come back here, the prices of those things go way, way up. So now the cost of us eating has gone way up. Absolutely. So it would actually have a domino effect. It all starts on the farm out in in those fields uh, where we have these workers. Uh, The president of the OFA, uh, Keith Curry, who I know, did write an op-ed recently, and I believe one of the his op-ed actually was published by the Spectator. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I do think that his op-ed actually was everywhere over the last few days, uh, telling farmers that they're not doing enough to protect workers. And so I was actually quite pleased to see that the president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture has decided to try to discipline its members a little bit, because I don't think... Based on the evidence that we have, I'm not entirely convinced that some farmers actually have taken C-19 very seriously, thinking that it was outside work, risks are very low. 
But let's face it, virus, the virus will spread in bunk houses. And when you have workers transiting together, that's exactly what happened in High River at Cargill, where more than 14, 1,500 people were contaminated. Uh, so unfortunately, we, we see a lot of farmers in Ontario who did not learn from the Cargill catastrophe in Alberta. Yeah, and, and certainly uh, anyone who's been to a farm and seen migrant workers or seen their living quarters, I mean, it's not luxury where they're living uh, by any stretch. The, the flip side to that, so you want them to be healthy, you want them to be living in proper places, but to build new structures or new facilities goes to the bottom line of farmers who many of them are already struggling just to make ends meet. What's the answer? How do you, how do you then solve this problem? There, there is this one myth that uh, that I seem to hear quite a bit these days is that a lot of people think that migrant workers are cheap labor. That's not exactly the case, by the way. <laughs> these people are well paid, and room and board uh, are uh, is covered as well. Uh, and and bunk houses aren't bad either. I mean, it's more like summer camp. In a context of a pandemic. Most of these bunk houses are inadequate. That's the problem. So, of course, a lot of people are looking at bunk houses thinking, well, that's not enough. Well, yes, absolutely, it is not enough. Uh, we need to, to actually make changes. What, what, I, what, what I do question is that the federal government actually did step up months ago, which may seem like a thousand years ago right yeah. now, but months ago, the federal government actually did step up providing financial support for farmers hire migrant workers, making sure that these bunk houses were in compliance. So I still wonder why this virus is spreading despite the help. Well, I, I mean, I don't necessarily expect that too many farmers will have gone out and built brand new facilities to have bigger space because they look at this and they say, well, when this virus is gone, say next summer, we don't need that. But in the meantime, uh, as you say, you have this situation where you've now got these guys who under normal circumstances, as I say, it may not be luxury, but it's fine. So I go back to my question, what what is the answer then? How do you keep them safe without spending globs of money to build brand new facilities that you may not need down the road? Well, so I do believe that the Ontario government has done actually a, a really good job communicating uh, its strategy to uh, external partners like Mexican government and things like that. But the, but the surveillance and monitoring will always be a challenge in farming. I mean, farms are out there in the middle of nowhere. To make sure that farmers actually do comply to rules is very difficult. Uh, I would say that the vast majority of farmers are quite responsible and try to do their best to be in compliance. But this is new for everyone. Mm. And, and farming farming is about traditions. And so they have, they've, they've been following similar practices for decades. It's probably tough for them to change anything, and I suspect that's what we're seeing right now, unfortunately. So I would say that the solution would be to have trade groups, including the OFA, put more pressure on its members to make sure that everyone is in compliance with rules. Yeah, and not just change something, as you point out, but the fact that this happened so quickly and right before the season that you would have had to make massive changes on the fly, that's not easy to do. Exactly. So we've seen deaths already, which is on, which, which are unfortunate, obviously. Uh, but I do believe that the OFA is working on a plan to make sure that, 
that farmers actually do comply. It is very important. And uh, to, to undermine this virus or just to pretend that this virus is not happening, no matter where you are, is a mistake, especially if you're running a business with employees. I have family that, uh, extended family that owns farms out in, in the Norfolk area here. And I've heard this question that I'm going to ask you come up a few times asked to them and brought up in discussion. And it's this, okay, we know that getting across the border right now with everything going on is difficult. We know that the migrant workers housing facility is probably not ideal, certainly not ideal for these circumstances. Why do we not just have a bunch of young people who may be looking for summer jobs but can't get it because there's no work to be had go and work in the fields and then they don't have to take CERB. They can make an honest living. They can work hard and they can do this work. They don't have to live in the bunkhouses because they can go home to their house at the end of the day. Why have we not gone to the workforce that we have right here in the country, Sylvain, and taken advantage of that? Because it's... (laughs) It's, I mean, some provinces have actually been successful in converting or getting some urbanites out, out there. Uh, but the number, uh, the number of people is very low. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a different lifestyle. Uh, and the ethics are different as well. Uh, migrant workers who come to Canada know how to work. They know how to work long hours. When it's time for harvest, there's no such thing as breaks. There's no such thing. You, you work until uh, the sun goes down. That's, that's the reality of our culture. And, and most, most Canadians haven't been raised. I've actually was raised on a farm personally, so I know how, how much hard work it is. Farming is hard work. And with the machinery that we use today, it's dangerous work as well. So farmers can rely on migrant workers who know what they're doing. And that's to hire more Canadians, it's not just to hire human capacity, but you have to train them. You have to work on their ethics. You have to work on their stamina and so on and so forth. So it's, it, it, it's much more costly, I would say, to hire Canadians. And that has nothing to do with wages, by the way. I, I th- What it sounds like, and I don't think you're saying this, but what it sounds like is that we may not have the same work ethic and we may even bring the L word in, in some cases and be a little lazier, which I, you know, I don't necessarily want to believe that, but you know, like I I can't believe there are not university students. Again, I'm not talking about bringing in a 65 year old woman or man to do this, who, you know, are getting to a point when they can't do that stuff. But if you're 22, 23 years old and you want to make a chunk of money over the summer, I can't believe we can't find people to do that. I, I don't think we're talking about laziness here. This is, I actually know a lot of people in Toronto work 80 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Different kind of work. With, yeah. It has nothing to do with laziness. It's, it's, it's more cultural and, and adaptability. It's physical, tough work. A lot of people, I mean, think of, I've actually picked up strawberries, you know, 12 hours a day for two weeks straight under the rain. Uh, it's, and it's, it wasn't always warm. And so it's tough physical work. Not everyone can actually do that, but working in front of a computer, a lot of people can do that. And that's how we're trying. It, it basically, it's, go, it's based on how you're trained. Mm. And so I don't think it has anything to do with laziness or it's more about adaptability and working in harsh environments. That's, that's really the key here. And most Canadians, let's face it, 
I, I worked on farms when I was a kid. I grew up on a farm. I'm 50 years old today. I'm, I'm inept now. I cannot go do that work anymore. I'm sorry, because I, I've been hardwired to do a different kind of job. By the way, I got to stop here for a second. You say you're 50 years old today. You don't mean like today, today. Today's not your birthday. No, 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 no. It's oh, okay. my wedding anniversary today. <laughs> oh, well, happy anniversary then. Either way, yeah, happy anniversary. Uh, we won't keep you long then. We'll let you get back to celebrating your wedding anniversary. But uh, last couple things. Um, I don't really believe that even with these demands to close down the farms and close down agriculture, that it's going to get much traction with anybody seriously, even though it's being thrown out there, because I think people realize that that may be using a stick of dynamite to kill a bug. Um, And that's probably a bad analogy. Nonetheless, Um, if we did something like that, though, if we did something like that beyond everything else, even if we shut it down a little bit or for a few weeks or partially, would we not also be absolutely destroying our farmers financially? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, the people who are requesting uh, uh, such a thing to happen uh, will be penalized as well down the road with uh, either less food, probably not less food, but more expensive food for sure. Uh, as soon as you actually uh, get rid of, of, of food supplies, uh, intentionally or not intentionally, uh, you will end up with higher food prices and food prices are already going up, uh, regardless. So you don't want to slap an extra 10%. Uh, so you need to make sure that workers are protected, that people follow the rules, but you can't really compromise the food security of a nation. And I, I think that the, the, the government, the Doug Ford government actually understands that. The last thing, do you know, do we have any kind of numbers anywhere that has given any indication of what percentage of farmers are just getting by right now? Uh, it depends what, uh, what sector you're looking at. In horticulture, it's, it's hit and miss. Uh, some are doing well. Some have been successful in hiring migrant workers while others haven't. I know that there are some tomato growers who have struggled to get the proper labor force this year as a result of COVID. It's really hit and miss. I can tell you in livestock, though, most people in livestock are suffering right now. Cattle, especially in Ontario, I know. Talking to people at Beef Ontario, it's been a struggle. The hog industry is struggling as well across the country. Farm gate prices are depressed. Uh, just because of, of these backlogs, uh, due to the fact that there's been so many plant closures. So I would say that many, many farmers are suffering out there, and this is not something they need. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, the food professor. Love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Um, th- think about that for just a second. I mean, we, 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 not his anniversary, although you can if you like. I was talking about the farming. We don't want migrant workers being injured or getting sick or dying, and and nobody is suggesting otherwise. I don't think anybody is being flippant about this or is being cavalier about this or saying, oh, well, they're from somewhere else. Who cares? I'm not hearing that. Maybe somebody thinks that I'm not hearing that. People are concerned about this, but the idea that we would shut down farms, shut down the industry for a while. Hey, let's just not grow for a while to let this thing go away. This is the, this is to me, and part of the reason we talked about this today, 
the perfect example of what are they, what they call the butterfly effect. You know what the butterfly effect is, right? That one little flutter of the wings affects the air, which affects something else, which affects something else. Like you can't do anything that doesn't cause a ripple down the road in life. And to shut down farms, even for a few weeks, would have such a monumental, unbelievable effect on everything, on exports, on food we have here, on farmers who now are losing money, who are maybe a lot of them barely hanging on, who now go out of business, who then cut into our food supply that causes everyone else's food prices to go up, which leads to cost of living, which means we have to pay more, which we don't have money for, which, I mean, you follow the train and boy, oh boy, when people make demands, and I understand the motive and the thought process behind we've got to shut this down to save migrant workers we want migrant workers safe but boy it seems like it is just we got to think this stuff through before we make these kind of demands because the spin-off could be a hundred times worse in the very big picture than what we're dealing with here that may actually have a solution before we do this you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Who does not like a good mafia story, especially in this city? Long history of it here. Well, it it, it, all, it continues on, not necessarily right here in Hamilton, but in this country. Canadian authorities have joined a global group of 19 countries that are actively trying to prevent the Calabrian mafia from exploiting the economic mess that COVID has left behind and jumping in and filling vacuums where it can. Like what? What are we talking about here? Well, I want to bring in James Dubrow, who's a well-known longtime crime writer, a researcher. He has long investigated and written about the mafia and organized crime. James, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you doing? I am good. First of all, just as a bit of a background to sort of set the table here, when I read about the Calabrian Mafia, what is the difference between the Calabrian Mafia and any other mafia that I hear about? Well, first of all, it isn't one mafia. They're mafia clans, right? Uh, We have the Sicilian Mafia clans, which are based in Sicily and have uh, families in, in the United States and Canada and around the world. And then the Calabrian Mafia, which has been called the Andrangheta for many years, We've had elements and clans of the Andrangheta in Canada for well over 100 years. One of the first mafia families in Ontario uh, was based in Hamilton area, uh, and that was the Rocco Perry, who was from Plati in Calabria, and he, he started the family, which to this day still has people involved over 130 years later. So the Calabrian Mafia has been growing in strength, though, in Italy in the last 30 years. And the Italian authorities and criminologists there have given a lot more attention to it recently. They're they're by far one of the largest mafia groups. But you have to realize there are a lot of different families and clans. And they operate all over the world, notably in Canada, because they've been here for 130 years, but also in the United States and Australia, especially over Europe, where they're taking advantage of some of the you know, pandemic conditions right now. Which means what? This, what sorry. like what no, which means what? Why would the mafia be um so much more even I don't know if the word is relevant, but that would draw the attention of the authorities right now. What what are the circumstances or the situations or the whatever as a result of COVID that is enticing or opening to the mafia? Right. Well they're not the only ones drawing the attention of the authorities. I mean Interpol unfortunately has been not very effective over the 
last 50 years in fighting the mafia or any other international organized crime. They're there, but they're not really, you know, they don't have much infrastructure. They're just, you know, they've been rather weak. So, the, you know, the fact they're bringing people together basically to monitor certain situations where the, where the uh, organized crime groups are uh, exploiting conditions and also where some of them are getting out of Italy and Europe and coming to countries like the United States, they're, they're looking at that, which, which is really the RCMP and, and the individual countries doing it, not Interpol. Interpol does very little. As for the pandemic, I mean, any international organized crime group would take advantage of the uh, lack of money that people have. And, you know, the mafia here and, and other groups are very cash rich sometimes. And they're into loan sharking and international gambling and money laundering. So they help companies and corporations that are in trouble. And, you know, you got to look to where you're getting your money because they then take over the companies. That's what's been happening in, in Europe. We haven't had a lot of that here lately, but more the mafia and dragging the families involved in gambling and, of course, loan sharking. There was one big takedown last year. You might remember the Fujimori clan uh, and about 15 people arrested, including Angelo Fujimori. And they were and dragging the family deeply tied in with Italy, the Soderno group in Italy and laundering money for them and running gambling outlets here. So are they wanting to just launder their money or are they hoping to actually be able to take over the companies or does it well, matter do to them? Both. They do both. They, they, they launder the money and they make them make money. But you know, I just want to emphasize lest people think we're, we're, um, we're picking on the mafia. <laughs> we are of course, but you know, it's not just the mafia, the mafias, the Nandrangada and the Sicilian other, don't forget the Camorra, uh, that, that are doing all this around the world. In fact, in Canada, I would say the, the Asian crime groups uh, led by the Big Circle Boys, which is also a group of different gangs and families, have we know through Vancouver and, and, and B.C. and even here in Ontario, have been laundering billions of dollars, billions of dollars uh, of drug money uh, through casinos, legitimate casinos. Big scandal in British Columbia. This is still unfolding in the last couple of years. Uh, and that is, you know, international organized crime money coming right through Canada. I would say they're even bigger than the Andrangheta in the sense of uh, the amount of money that's uh, uh, crooked money, I should say, being laundered and funneled through Canada and through illicit enterprises and doing it through a lot of legitimate uh, corporations in British Columbia and even in Ontario and through real estate too. This is another area where they launder money and um, uh, take the proceeds of money made in, in this case, Hong Kong, Singapore, China, uh, in the case of the mafia, money made in Italy, Germany, whatever, in, in Europe, uh, and then launder it through legitimate enterprises here in Canada, the United States. So I think it's important to say it's just not the... Fair enough. The yeah, for sure. And don't, don't forget our, our wonderful bikers. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're doing quite well in drugs still and a lot of other things. And they have lots of money to offer companies and people. And they're very involved in things like the tow truck industry, which we've heard a bit about. So is the Calabrian Mafia. Um, and Drangas families have their hand in auto body shops and tow companies. 
And, and to be fair, and, and when you mention all these things, and it's a, it's a good point you make that there's more than one crime organized crime group in the world. It was Interpol exactly. that it was Interpol that specifically referred to the Andrangheta that that created this discussion. But I, absolutely yeah, I right, know. there's lots of others that are that are going here now. Do, forgive my naivete, because I mean, like, I this is not a, a world that I live in, work in, operate in. Do most? Bad. Yeah, I know. Sad. Do most of the people? Who would, let's say your business is failing, let's say COVID has really hurt things, your cash short, someone comes to you and says, hey, I can give you a loan, I can help you out, and they may be involved with, with organized crime. Do you believe that most of the people who run these businesses know full well beforehand who they're getting in bed with, or do they find out some of them after who they've connected well, with? Well, I've, I've seen this over the years, and often they don't know, really, whether it's even the old-fashioned, stereotypical Sicilian mafia or Calabrian Mafia in Montreal. I know people that got involved. Their companies were in trouble. Oh, they weren't even in trouble. These people came along and then got involved and then took them over. They didn't know that they were, how serious Mafia they were. Um, no, I think a lot of people don't know because they're desperate. And if they do know, well, that's, uh, you know, one of the uh, problems they have to face. But most of them don't know what's happening, uh, whether it's Asian crime, because a lot of these uh, organized crime people use legitimate companies, and it would appear, would generally appear through a legitimate company, unless they're just handing over bags of cash, which has happened. <laughs> that that might but, be a tip off. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've we've had prime minister here in this country years ago who got envelopes of cash and didn't seem to be too worried about it. I shouldn't mention that, should I? <laughs> <laughs> but but then okay, so you 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 connect with these people, you take their money, whatever, whether you yeah. know or you don't know. And they bail you out and they help you keep your company afloat. And then let's say you can't pay it back. Now, how, how much do we know is the movies and how much is like, what happens after that? We see what happens in the movies with this stuff. Right. Is that a somewhat realistic view of what could happen to you? Or do they just simply take your company and you're pushed out? Well, it happens many, many ways. I think, you know, it's not one way. Um, it usually is over time. It's usually through people that, they begin to trust. Uh, they don't have to be in trouble, incidentally. They don't have to, uh, at the end, they don't have to be not paying. Uh, they say, <laughs> in some cases, I know, they say, well, look, we've helped you through this. Now we want to take uh, a third or two thirds of your company. They don't want to take it all, you know, usually, although that's happened to it, it. There are many, many ways of doing it. So, as many ways as there. Remember, the organized crime, these mafia people are very ingenious if they're any good. At keeping up with the scams and taking people uh, un unaware, usually taking people for money. That's, that's their that's their game. You know, and the underworld is famous for that. But they're also offering services that people want, you know, whether it's migrant workers or, oh, hit people they might need. <laughs> there are all sorts of services, drugs, cocaine, amphetamine. There are all sorts of services and products that uh, that the that the various organized crime groups offer that people want and that includes companies sometimes you know there it's mostly money but uh, access to other people access to people in asia in 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 europe the the andrangheta groups are very very powerful in throughout europe now and germany and italy other places it, in europe 
it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story i wish we had more time it, it really is an oh. interesting story there's lots written about it people can go find it online about what interpol is trying to do and why they're concerned uh james we always love it when you have a few minutes to join us thanks for taking the time today yeah no problem and interpol number though is it's just a it's just hosting it. They're not going to be solving anything. It's going to be done in the home countries like Canada and the RCMP. And the RCMP has their hands full right now with a lot of other things to shoot. <laughs> yeah, just, just a bit. James Dubrow, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Right, take care. Bye, Scott. Uh, it, as I say, interesting, especially with Hamilton's history. Uh, and I'm always questioning how much that's still going on here, although I'm not naive enough, obviously, with stuff that's happened in recent years to think it doesn't. But this, uh, you should read this story. It's very interesting about how they are, how different criminal groups are trying to get in as a result of the opening COVID has presented to them. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.